seated. Turning today to Daniel chapter 9, and we'll be reading beginning with verse 20 to the end of uh, chapter 9. This will be a two-part sermon today. We'll be looking at the first two points on your sermon outline, then next week we'll come and finish up this prophecy in chapter 9 of Daniel. But now we'll begin reading verse 20, Daniel chapter 9. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved, therefore consider the word and understand the vision." Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks." Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I do hope you all got that. And you have it all figured out. For like Daniel, you've been given knowledge and insight. Let's pray. Father, as we read this passage, we are reminded of how infinite is your truth and your knowledge and how finite is ours. And so we humbly ask for you to guide us today and next Sunday as we look at this prophecy that is but a brief passage in relation to the entire revelation that you've given us in both the Old Testament and New Testament, but as a passage that seems to have taken on a life of its own in so many ways. And so, Lord, help us, guide us, direct us. Oh, God, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts and apply your word. And I pray for myself as the one who would be preaching for faithfulness and for accuracy and clarity, even as we would pray the same for those who would hear. In Christ's name, amen. One of my seminary professors 
Dr. Meredith Klein, an Old Testament scholar who is now uh, with the Lord, uh, was at Gordon-Conwell when I was there, and I had the privilege of uh, taking a number of classes uh, from him. And one class in particular really caught my attention. It was a class that Dr. Klein taught on the Old Testament prophets, and I still remember uh, today when we came to the book of Daniel, and then as we were working through Daniel, we came to the very passage that I just read, Daniel's 70 weeks or 77 uh, passage, and I just remember how animated uh, Dr. Klein became. Now, he was always a great lecturer, really was so benefited from how God had worked in his life and the insight that he had given him. But I'm telling you, he went into overdrive teaching when we came to this passage. Now, for some of you, you may have no idea what a blackboard is. And the only chalk you might be familiar with is that which you use to mark up sidewalks and parking lots. But back in my seminary days, uh, high-tech was a chalkboard. And Dr. Klein loved using chalk and the chalkboard when he was teaching. In fact, when he started writing on the board, giving us all of his wisdom about the 70 weeks passage, and then he, as he was drawing diagrams and putting up charts, I looked and it, it seemed like a plume of chalk was rising from poor Dr. Klein. And Dr. Klein had a tendency when he taught, he was constantly touching things about his body and fiddling with with papers. And so he was so energized teaching, using this chalk and chalkboard, he had chalk dust all over his finger and that chalk dust was transferred to his forehead, to his nose, to his cheek, to to his lapel on his coat. There was this chalk everywhere. And I didn't know... And I didn't know if I should be just more impressed with the unbelievable skill and insight of this Old Testament scholar because he really knew his stuff and he was just teaching to beat the band or if I should be in awe of that or amused at this spectacle of chalk and chalk dust. Well, you may be asking, why are you telling, it, telling us this story about Dr. Klein, and here's the reason. He was energized over this passage, like I've never seen them energized over a passage before, and there's good reason, because most are energized over this passage. It has gotten a lot of press, uh, so to speak, over the, the years, and one commentator, in fact, said this passage is a swamp. There is just such disagreement and uh, interest in this particular passage. There are a number of different interpretations of this passage. There are two primary approaches that one might use to try to figure out what God is communicating to Daniel in uh, this answer uh, to Daniel's uh, prayer. Uh, One approach is to to take the 70 weeks that we find mentioned here, or the 77s, 
and to view them literally, meaning 490 uh, days. And of this scheme, there are several variations. One that critical scholarship seems to like places the real focus of this passage or this prophecy in the second century, and it's really focused on the death of Antiochus IV Epiphanes and then the rise of Jacob Maccabees to uh, rebuild the temple. And then another literal view or, or literal approach view is that of dispensationalism. And likely some of you here today have studied the book of Daniel and especially this particular passage in light of the theological structure known as dispensationalism. And the dispensational view, this this prophecy primarily being about the restoration of ethnic Israel in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ after the second uh, coming and during that millennial reign of Christ, the the temple will be rebuilt and the sacrificial system will be reinstituted. And so, the prophecy, according to dispensationalism, is about the restoration of ethnic Israel. The seventieth week is understood as being a time of intense persecution. It's that that period that dispensationalists call the Great Tribulation, the seven years prior to the second coming of Christ. And there the final Antichrist will arise in the middle of that period and make a covenant with the people of Israel. And then he'll break the covenant and then he'll persecute the people of God. Of course, At the beginning of that tribulational period, before it actually starts, there's the dispensational notion of a rapture that takes place where the church is at that time is raptured out so they won't go through that tribulation. And that's a whole other issue (laughs) that we might have with dispensationalism. But in order to make this prophecy about the, the restoration of ethnic Israel... What dispensationalists have to do is to disassociate the prophecy with the prayer that Daniel was praying. In other words, they don't see the prophecy as an answer to what Daniel was praying. And so what they do then is to place the starting date of this period of time that the prophecy calls 70 weeks or 77s, not with Cyrus's decree, but with Artaxerxes' decree in 445 BC that allowed for Nehemiah to return and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, secondly, not only do they disassociate the prophecy with the prayer and have a later date for the beginning of the 70 weeks. But according to this literal view, they also have to insert a gap. It's called the great parenthesis between the 69th week and the 70th week. Because remember, the 70th week is about what takes place in the great tribulation just prior to Christ's second return. Are you hanging in there with me? The reason I'm going over this is because I want us to see the complexity of this passage and how easy it is to misunderstand 
what God is doing here. And so this gap between the 69th week and the 70th week is the age that we are currently living in, the church age. And what is striking about this gap, the dispensational would say, the six events or works or, res- or responses to the anointed one coming that you'll see listed in verse 24, that those six things that must take place for there to be a full restoration are given to Israel in the millennial reign of Christ. They're not for the church age. And then secondly, the two greatest events that we see noted in this particular passage that really brings about the 70th week is one, the crucifixion, and two, the destruction of the temple. And both of those events that point to the fact that Jesus Messiah has come and has done everything necessary to restore God's people and has established a new covenant, those two things that point to that fulfillment being in Christ are put in this parenthetical period between the 69th and 70th week. And here's the point. Jesus is not the focal point of the prophecy, according to dispensationalism. And we should find much problem (laughs) with that. This particular understanding is, is not well attested in history. It just started really back in the 19th century. And though I wish not to be overly critical, I do find it important to warn about buying in to such an interpretation that one scholar has said is an exotic interpretation that is exegetically untenable and theologically flawed. And I would say that the, the literal view trying to force a scheme like this upon Scripture can and has missed the point of the prophecy And there may be some here today that were raised up under a dispensational type of a framework, and I trust I've not offended anyone, but if I have, I do ask forgiveness for offending, but I do not ask forgiveness for speaking the truth. So if it's not about Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and if it's not about ethnic Israel being restored in a thousand-year millennial reign, what is the prophecy about? I think you already know. I take the 77s, and I prefer 77s over 70 weeks, as figurative or symbolic of a period of time. And even those who, like myself, and perhaps most of you here today, that would take the 77s as being uh, figurative, even there, there are differences in, in how we understand how this passage is really fleshed out. For example, one figurative approach 
believes that this is primarily about the first advent of Christ, and it surely is about the first advent of Christ. Where Christ comes, he's crucified, the temple is destroyed. That's absolutely true. But there's another view that a view I, I favor is that it is about the first advent of Christ, but it, it also soars beyond that. Because with Christ's first coming and his, and his work that we find detailed in verse 24, those six works that Christ did, he established a new covenant. So we're in a new covenant age that takes us right up until Christ comes again. It's a glorious age of the church. Where all of these things that, that, we, that, that we live under, this mediator, Jesus Christ, who has done these six things, we've been restored with the church. And so it's a very hopeful, glorious age in which we live. And so I'd rather think about this passage as Jesus, Messiah, and the new covenant age that he has established for God's people that will come to its fullness when he uh, comes again or to its completion or its consummation when he comes again. And so like the Sunday school teacher who said, tell me what I'm describing, it has a bushy tail, it's gray, basically sometimes brown. I've even seen a black one here on the church property. And it gathers nuts and stores them and seems to be confused when in the middle of the road and a car is approaching. Has pointy ears, climbs trees and runs along power lines. What is it, class? And one little student said, sounds like a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus. Right? Because, as you know, if you don't know, you should know by now that Jesus is the only answer to a proper, the only proper answer to a Sunday school question, right? Well, some look at this passage and they take the clear description of Jesus and they answer squirrel. But we need to see the clear description of Jesus that God gives to Daniel and answer Jesus. And thankfully so. Now today, I want to do just a couple of things literally a couple of things. So I am a literalist. Uh, We want to look at the first two points of your sermon outline, the purpose that God gave for this prophecy, and then the timetable. And so the text tells us, and the next week we'll look at the six works or results of the anointed one coming, and then the fulfillment as we consider the jubilee year that I find referenced here, God's, God's eternal jubilee as we look at the fulfillment that he's given. But for today, first, the purpose. And so here's the point. God answered. And the text tells us that he answered immediately. Now, you know as well as I do that we should not interrupt someone when they're speaking, right? But we are overjoyed when God interrupts us when we're praying with his answer, right? That's what he did with Daniel in mid-prayer. God dispatches swiftly Gabriel, the angel that we first encountered back in chapter 8, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. While Daniel was still praying, says the text, Gabriel comes before Daniel even said, Amen, he had an answer to his prayer. 
And we would love for God to answer that quickly every single time we pray, right? But oftentimes he doesn't. But the point is this, that when we pray, and I don't know this, but probably even when we pray foolishly or, or when we pray like James warns, even, even with the wrong motive, we're God's children. He loves us. And I, I just can't believe he doesn't immediately hear our prayer like he heard Daniel's prayer. And because he immediately hears it doesn't mean he immediately responds to it like he did Daniel. But he does hear and he does respond according to his will and by his timetable. Well, why, why such a response to, to Daniel's prayer that, that came so swiftly in, in mid prayer? Verse 23 and verse, the end of verse 23 and also the whole of verse 22 tells us that God answered so that Daniel would have understanding and insight with regards to how he was going to fulfill this promised restoration, which has been the topic of Daniel's prayer. And that was his focus. And what was Daniel praying? He, he was praying in light of what he read in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29 about God's promise that after 70 years he would bring the Israelites back from captivity and rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, repopulate Jerusalem with God's people. And Daniel was praying for that, rightly so. And yet God, God comes to him and he says, Oh, Daniel, I want to give you knowledge and insight into what my plans are that go well beyond a physical restoration. God came to Daniel and said, Daniel, I want to show you how long of an arm my mercy really is. I want to show you, Daniel, how full my restoration really is. And Daniel, in that answer, learned of the immensity of God's promise. You know, as we live by faith and as we pray by faith, more and more we should pray bold prayers. The more we know, the more God the Holy Spirit gives us illumination and insight into the fullness of the promises of God. We see them as immense and we can boldly pray for God to fulfill them. Why did God choose to give Daniel understanding and insight regarding the future? Grandma Kenny, who is Renee's uh, grandmother, uh, mothered uh, three sons and one daughter. And, of course, one of those sons is Renee's uh, dad, Gene. But Renee's, uh, Grandma Kenny's eldest son, Max, when he was young, served overseas in the military during World War II. And Renee tells the story that Grandma Kenny wrote her son letters. Get this, not emails, not Skype. Wrote her son, Uncle Max, in Renee's point of view, letters every day. That blows me away. I can't even imagine emailing or texting every day. And I usually get texts messed up anyway with that autocorrect stuff. Now, why did she do that? 
Well, one reason is because Max was unmarried and didn't have a wife to write him every day, so, so mom wrote him every day. But a second reason that she loved him. And she wanted to stay in touch with her beloved son and to communicate with him. She wanted him to be kept up with all, all the news of life back in Peru, Indiana. In verse 23, God said to Daniel, Daniel, I want to give you knowledge and insight into the immensity of my promise and the fullness of my answer and fulfillment of that promise for one reason. Not that you can figure out this prophecy and impress your friends as you teach using a blackboard. One reason. Daniel, you're greatly loved. And that, dear brothers and sisters, has really impressed me. This is, we're used to writing love letters. Well, this is a love vision from God to Daniel. My dear son, I want you to know and to have insight into what I'm going to do in the future because I want you to be prepared. And Daniel, you need to know that your expectations may not be met. Because Daniel, you're thinking about a physical restoration of the temple, of Jerusalem, and a repopulation of your people to a physical city. But what I'm going to do far surpasses that. And Daniel, I want you to know that so that when you see the smoke rising as you look down the corridors of history from what was a restored temple in Jerusalem, you will not be discouraged. And that you will trust me because what I'm doing, Daniel, is going to be so much greater, vaster than what your expectations might be. And isn't that where our hope lies? Sometimes we we really think way too small about God and about his fulfillment of promises. And yet God says, oh, what I'm going to do is so much greater than what you can ever imagine. Well, what is the significance about the time? Did you note that in verse 21? This is easily overlooked. What about the time? This really is striking. The time Daniel was praying was the time of the evening sacrifice. Where was Daniel praying? He was in what used to be Babylon, now part of the Persian Empire. When was the last time Daniel experienced the evening sacrifice or the morning sacrifice? at the temple. When was the last time? It was at least 66 years ago. You know, I can't remember half of what I studied in seminary 30-some years ago. And we should be struck by the fact that after 66 years, and by the way, for the people of God, the temple was destroyed in 587. There had been no morning and evening sacrifices for any Israelite since 586, 587. And for Daniel, 66 years. 
And the evening sacrifice is so fresh on his mind, he writes this down as a timestamp of when he was praying and a timestamp of when Gabriel came and gave him God's answer. And I want to suggest there are two reasons or two things that we might learn. The first is this. It speaks to Daniel's personal relationship with God. Daniel really did live in the presence of God. Now, remember back some sermons ago when we were in Daniel chapter 8, and we were working through that passage, we we spoke quite a bit about the the morning and evening sacrifices at the temple. They were the regular sacrifices. Remember Antiochus Epiphanes when he uh, came to power as the leader of of the of the Persian Empire or the Seleucid Empire came and ended the morning and evening sacrifices. And we, we spoke about that when we looked at Daniel chapter 8. But this is a regular part of temple worship. Then in the morning and, and at roughly 9 o'clock in the morning, there would be a blood sacrifice. And in the evening, roughly um, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there would be another evening sacrifice. And this was regular. This was normal. This happened every single day at the temple to remind God's people of what? To remind God's people of their continual daily need for God's provision for their sin. And here Daniel, after 66 years of participating in any sacrifice at the temple. His need for God to deal with his sin was so fresh on his mind, it it was as if the sacrifice had just taken place. It speaks to Daniel living so vitally in the presence of God, being fully aware of his need for God. Faithful Daniel who was always thinking about God as the provider, his need, and living by faith, receiving from God what what he needed. It speaks volumes about Daniel's zeal and passion to depend and trust upon his God, even while living in a foreign land, even while the temple lie in ruins. And dear brothers and sisters, should our zeal and passion to depend upon God, is God our provider, our need, God's provision for our sin at the fore of our minds and in our hearts every single day? But I think there may be another reason why this easily missed time of prayer Time of the evening sacrifice is important. And I think it might speak to Daniel's expectation. Remember I said God came to Daniel out of love and said, Daniel, my, my beloved child, I'm coming to you to give you knowledge and insight because I want you to know what's coming. I want you to know some particulars about how I'm going to uh, fulfill my promise and restore Israel. And, of course, Daniel was likely thinking a rebuilt temple, a rebuilt city, a reinstitution of sacrifices, and a restored people to the city of Jerusalem, right? That's what I'd be thinking. That's what Daniel knew. He should be thinking that. And I think we see that here 
in this notation that he was praying at the time of the evening sacrifice because that was his expectation. And here again, we, we see God saying, Oh, Daniel, how much greater are my purposes? How much greater is my plan? How much fuller will my restoration be? You see, we must and we should appreciate the zeal and passion of Daniel after 66 years. The morning and evening sacrifices being so fresh on his mind. That, that I mean, Daniel, as, we can call him a Christian, can't we? I mean, as far as, you know, the people of God go, he's, I mean... He's right up there with the Apostle Paul, right? And yet he was so in tune with his need for God to deal with his sin that this regular daily practice of worship that he had not witnessed for 66 years was still fresh on his mind. And God came to him and said, Daniel, I'm going to do something so much greater in fact, Daniel, what I'm going to do is something where you'll never have to slaughter another animal again. Listen, brothers and sisters, the prophecy is about Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, show us uh, Jesus in this text, show us our need for that provision for sin. Enable us, O oh Lord, to live like Daniel. To live like Daniel who knew his need for your provision for his sin. And he lived before you depending and trusting and pleading for your mercy. O oh Lord, make us like that, we pray. And how much more should we be like that? Because we have the very reality to which this prophecy pointed to. Jesus himself. And God, I pray that you would daily remind us and show us and establish us in the sufficiency of Christ. As the true prophet, priest, and king, the mediator of a new covenant. The anointed one who came to bring an end to sacrifice as the once-for-all sacrifice, to deal with sin once and for all, and to establish a righteousness that is everlasting. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.